You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast. And uh, we've got lots of things to contribute for the week uh, uh, on the program today. Uh, uh it was almost an embarrassment of riches, uh, things that happened this week uh, in terms of uh, stuff to tell you about. Uh, the um, raucous caucus, uh, orcus caucus uh, did come off, and if you'd listened to uh, Jacob on the Friday rave, you'll hear excerpts if you're unable to actually turn up or tune in. So uh, go back on Friday to the um, uh, up. Friday rave and you'll get catch up. Um, I was going to uh, uh, give you some snippets, but I thought he'd already done a good job. Uh, There was also an amazing um, uh, meeting of the Tamil the. Tamil Refugee Council put on, they alerted us to the fact that uh, the uh, as they relax the. uh, COVID uh, restrictions on flights, uh, that the federal government has started uh, deporting Tamil uh, refugees. Um, no rest for the wicked, quite clearly. Uh, and uh, there was an extraordinary meeting of the Tamil Refugee Council. And uh, you may not already be aware of this, but uh, Aaron Maivanganan, I hope I've said that right. He he's a, a fantastic fellow. He's a uh, he's been a three CR contributor, and he's also the person who set up the Tamil Refugee Council. Fantastic fighter, a uh, good union man. He's actually put his hat in the ring to become to run for the Senate in the next federal election. So uh, look out for that, and. Uh, uh, you'll be able to contribute uh, financially and uh, in other ways if you're interested in helping Aaron, a good person. A fan- could you imagine if Aaron got into the Senate? That would be a great thing. Anyway, uh, I've got a piece from that uh, that is just a very fiery, amazing speech by a young 19-year-old woman. Uh, it to, uh, some some speeches just uh, elevated to a higher level. It's it's a bit uh, confronting, but of course all good speeches are. We might play that a little bit later. Uh, and uh, I'm going to speak to Alex from the Renters and Housing Union, who have just put our a report. They've been. Uh, uh, helping people uh, deal with uh, issues in this COVID crisis uh, when it comes to uh, keeping a, head, a, a roof over their heads. And uh, they've got some things to say about uh, the effectiveness of the uh, 
moratorium on evictions and how effective that was uh, and also uh, the, uh, some misbehaviour coming out of, uh, goodness me, calcipri, um, misbehaviour from uh, certain uh, landlords and uh, real estate agents. But anyway, and they have recommendations around what they think the, the housing landscape should actually look like. Uh, of course, we've got Kevin and uh, also we're hopefully going to speak to Jamil, who is an AEU uh, delegate, Australian Education Union delegate. Uh, of course, there's this business about opening up the schools and uh, what's it like on the on the front line and how, how does a, a person within a union help to uh, shape a union response under... And of course, our numbers in Victoria are very high at the moment for people with COVID. And interestingly enough, if you looked at the breakdown of age groups, the age group between 20 and 29 appear to be the most fearless because they don't mind getting COVID. (laughs) Obviously, their behaviour is uh, perhaps um, uh, less than desirable, or maybe it's because they're the active ones going to work and... uh, there's uh, problems in that area. But anyway, uh, I've been noticing a little bit of relaxation in relation to uh, behaviours. Uh, but, uh, I, you know, whatever, whatever. Uh, as uh, the previous, uh, uh, what is it, uh, James, uh, put, uh, uh, in in uh, Stick Together, it was beautifully stated, uh, um, uh, vaccination saves lives. Uh, I thought that was such a quotable quote. Very, very interesting program, the previous Stick Together. If you didn't catch it, then you probably should go back and have a listen to it. Um, Anyway, uh, a few uh, announcements and uh, we'll crack on with uh, the piece I haven't told you about at all yet, but uh, stay tuned. The Environmental Film Festival Australia is back for 2021. This year's digital festival invites you to take a journey with a series of thought-provoking films, documentaries and shorts. Effort 21 invites you to explore the world and connect with environmental issues beyond the headlines. Take a journey into the deepest seas, up awe-inspiring mountains and into the lives of those fighting to save our planet. Running from October 14 to November 14, visit effa.org.au for more. The Environmental Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. Recently, the uh, Australian uh, Conservation Foundation, uh, in response to the AUKUS announcements uh, uh, around a um, nuclear sub and uh, the idea of, uh, you know, wouldn't it be nice to have a nuclear, a nuclear um, domestic nuclear power industry that seems to be on the cards because that's what, uh, you know, lazy po- uh, federal politicians from the Na- uh, Liberal National Party always like to do. They like uh, easy answers. And uh, they've got some mates who want to make uh, a large amount of money in that area. Uh, oh, my mouth, it just ran off. Anyway, um, 
the Australian Conservation Foundation um, had a uh, a link to a film. They had a, an event to try and uh, raise people's awareness, consciousness around uh, why nuclear is not an answer. And uh, they want uh, people to actually involve themselves in, uh, and there is this movement going on at the moment uh, where there's a, co- uh, a coalescing of the forces that uh, are the environmental movement, the peace movement, and um, anti-nuclear movement. And um, they had a screening of a great film called uh, The Atom, A Love Affair by Vicky Leslie. And this uh, prompted me to actually seek Vicky out and have a chat with her about this great film, which is a historical uh, view of uh, the nuclear power industry and uh, using the metaphor of a love affair, which, you know, how inspired is that? Here we go. Thanks very much for talking to me. I'll have to say... very well. I thought it was a stroke of genius that you um, encapsulated the story of the atom as a love affair. Can you tell me how that came about? Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it was very late, actually, in the process. It was not what well, all the while, well, most of the while that we were filming, it was under a different title and it was more around um, the working title we were working with was The Greatest Story Ever Sold. And it was kind of you know, the, the messages about nuclear power and how those have changed over the decade. And then it was actually while we were editing, it was a combination of putting, starting to actually put a whole film together, you know, a 90 minute film and thinking about a big sort of structure. Um, but it was a combination of that and wanting to find something that would be, would be a device to kind of tie it all together, combined with um, my sort of observation really about how emotional so many of the people that I'd interviewed particularly the advocates for nuclear, how emotional they were. Um, and it was, I, I, it's one of those things I can't entirely remember now, you know, who said it, but my editor and I were having all, you know, just constantly talking, talking, talking about trying to, what, what was the film, you know, what was the film about beyond just, it's about the story of nuclear power, you know, what was it about beneath that? And one or other of us kind of said it and I went away and then kind of almost thought it was a bit of a joke, you know, sort of said it in a slightly jokey way. But then when I actually started to try and map on the events, um, the actual historical events to that kind of metaphor the more I did it the more I thought actually this works really really well and so then we just decided to just really commit to it you know it was a bit we had some slightly some you know some people we talked to about it were a bit like really that's a bit weird (laughs) but we just kind of I really liked it I felt like it made it it made it more into a kind of cinematic kind you know a film rather than just a sort of you know extended news kind of current affairs program which is there's nothing wrong with current affairs programs but I yeah, was but, trying to do something but, but also, beyond that, different to that. Yeah, but also, as you were saying, um, it, it's how the, how the story was sold. And it's like all um, major yes. pushes for uh, that become so um, uh, create two uh, areas of uh, complete opposition. Uh, it, it, it needs a metaphor of this sort. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was also really taken by the beautiful. I think so. Uh, yeah, it's, it's so polarized, isn't it? It's the yeah, it's polarized, and the whole story of gendered um, relationships is polarized, and so so. Um, yeah, and that, that's pushed. obviously a, an aspect of love affair metaphor that I almost didn't flew into. Yeah, 
the gendered aspects of that metaphor that the I very much conceived of the atom as a male character and actually when I interviewed I only did a couple of interviews with with people in the film by the time we had come up with this metaphor so most people I didn't you know most people in the film didn't know about it until it was finished but I remember one of the German um the German engineer who worked at Siemens who was um who was there when Fukushima happened and he he was a late interview and we talked I talked to him about the metaphor and I was really struck he he loved it and thought it was really a great way to think about the story but he immediately started talking about the atom as a female character which I just thought was really, really interesting. Like I had always thought that in my mind, the atom was this kind of roguish man, you know, male boyfriend or, you know, kind of male character. And he immediately had the, you know, a completely gender switch. So that was, that was interesting to me. But also it might uh, tend towards his view of himself as, or the engineers yeah. as themselves yeah. uh, using the atom as an extension of their own prowess. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, it's very, very uh, uh, Freudian, really. Um, the uh, beautiful uh, 50s uh, imagery that you conjure up, I, I um, yeah. love that period. I, I've done a lot of uh, um, printing work and uh, that whole illustration period as well as the palette is, is beautiful. Yeah. And you do it, you do it unerringly, beautifully. It is alluring is exactly the right word actually you know the whole thing it is it was alluring like that period and that kind of excitement of the mid the mid 20th century when and the atom was just part of a you know a bigger kind of conception of the future um and how yeah technology was kind of going to be the was going to save us you know and take us into this new experience um and yeah so I wanted to really convey that and I think you're right that that there is something I actually talked to um, Pseudo Echo, the, you know, the Aussie band. Um, I, I used one of their tracks over the end of the over the end credits, um, and I had a chat with um, Brian, the singer from Pseudo Echo. We did a little um, video for their Facebook page, um, and we were talking about exactly that. You know, he said he had a real fascination with the kind of that period of history and the sort of like techno future. It's almost like a kind of true nostalgia for the future. It's a sort of strange we're in a strange time now, we're in that future, but it's not it's not the future that they imagined, you know, it didn't work out how how they thought. And I suppose that's kind of what I'm trying to get at in this film, isn't it? You know, the both the kind of romance of the idea, but also the reality of what actually happened is not is not the same as the as the idea and the romance. Yeah, yeah, which is one of the fantastic elements of this film. Uh, I also was uh, really taken by um uh, Eisenhower's pitch for the at uh, nuclear for peace, or what was it? Nuclear yeah, atoms for peace. Yeah, atoms for peace. It was atoms atoms for peace? Yeah, which is like uh, <laughs> war for peace to us now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's quite. I, I didn't really know very much about atoms for peace, and it was it was really really interesting. I mean, it, it gets into a lot of um, other sort of political stuff, you know about the beginnings of the cold war and kind of where you know where america was positioning itself and you know there was there was so much more to this story you know than i even when i was able to include in just in my 90 minutes um we'll talk about the things that i was found incredibly uh, compelling about your film was the even-handedness of it you actually um you have access to a lot of people who were in love with the atom and then you yeah uh 
which is unusual from my standpoint because it just seems such a horrific. I mean, I'll tell you a short, short, small, a small story. I remember when I was a kid, we went to Canberra, which is a thing that we people do, and go to the uh, capital city, and we went to the War Memorial, mm -hmm. which, which I found kind of creepy. And in the right inside the front door was a glass box, and inside it, it were these shard remains, and it said Hiroshima remains. And I left the building. I just thought this is just very, very creepy. Yeah. So. So my view I've of been yeah. there, I've been to Hiroshima. My uh, my brother lives in Japan and I've been there. It's it's really yeah. It's it's ugh, it's very difficult to get your mind around yeah. nuclear weapons. I think. Yeah. So, but it's you fascinating how you actually uh, slowly but surely, step by step, calibrate the story from both sides. Uh, the original uh, pretext for nuclear power but which was actually a shield for the actual weaponry which was behind it. Well, I think there was a lot going on. And I guess, you know, when I first started, I definitely, you know, I'm a sort of, I come from an anti-nuclear place, you know, that's my background. And that's definitely what, where I started from. But as I got on, yeah, it was it was the kind of emotion and the feeling behind behind it all that, that kind of interested me. That way, that, that was what I wanted to speak to people actually involved in the industry particularly but also just because I want you know as a filmmaker I also think it's just much more interesting if you're hearing if you're hearing about the events from the people who are actually involved in those events rather than just um you know commentators and obviously there's a limit to how far back you can do that because people aren't alive anymore but um but I was pretty lucky I think I had three people in their 90s who several of whom it's quite sad you know I, I'm I keep getting updates like a number of people I filmed with now have passed away since I interviewed them. Um, but so I feel glad that, you know, I got in there and was able to capture the, those kind of stories and experiences before, before they were gone, you know. Yeah, so basically what you're doing is not, they're not just uh, evil people. That's my point. It's, it, it, that's why it's no, such no, a... exactly. Yeah. Everybody is, yeah. Uh, and, Everybody's and... coming at it in good faith, you know, and... Um, and I felt on that journey of really, under I think I became to really understand their point of view, even though in the end, I don't think nuclear power is, is the solution. I it just isn't, it's not what we need. It's not working. But I understand much more why the people who are still you know, proposing it, why they're proposing it. And actually, I think a lot of those reasons are less to do with things about nuclear power, really, and they're more to do with their relationship to nuclear power, if that makes sense, you know, their feelings that that's, you know, that's coming back to the feelings, you know, I don't know if it's almost like a bit of a, it's a bit of a dirty word sometimes with kind of with engineers and some scientists perhaps to talk about feelings, but we're human beings, aren't we? That, you know, scientists and engineers are human beings just as much as activists and campaigners or politicians or anybody. We're all people. We've all got our own feelings about things and our own experiences that we're bringing to them. And, and I think sometimes those aren't acknowledged, you know, in, in debates about these kind of, you know, hot hot button issues that nuclear power definitely is one where there's very clear sides and very clear talking points. But there's more there's more behind that than just I'm right and you're wrong, you know? I was very impressed with the um, documentation of the uh, grassroots community groups. How brave were they and how amazing were the results of their work? Yeah, amazing. And I mean, I found that very moving because that I've done a lot of campaigning and seeing that kind of um 
dedication and you know long-term um commitment to you know to whatever it is you're campaigning about i mean the the, the ladies in california you know the, the mothers for peace but i mean they're all grandmas now and one of those ladies is one of is one of the people who has passed away since i filmed with her liz Apfelberg. she she passed away which i was really sorry to hear um we spent decades you know on this on this issue um which is really incredible well they also started from a point where uh they were being made fun of and belittled yes but they refused to be to to stop that that takes uh, immense courage and immense and actually that, that their journey they have really got that that's true and um probably one of the things i didn't I, wasn't able to probably convey as much as I would have liked to have done you know if I'd have had more <laughs> more screen time they're now like incredibly respected by you know by the industry and by the um the regulators they know so much you know they they started out just as as they said like lay lay people um but you know they've spent decades on this this subject they are incredibly authoritative knowledgeable um I was there we filmed them on a like a conference call with with the nuclear regulatory commission while i was there which we couldn't fit in the film in a way in the end it didn't really kind of make sense with our historical story but it was really it was great seeing them you know they're, they'd gone from being these kind of these young mums on that in that hearing room feeling very sort of intimidated and to being these like incredibly powerful women with decades of knowledge and experience behind them who are absolutely you know key people in these discussions about um I actually can't even remember what that particular hearing was about now, but it was, you know, it was about some particularly very specific technical issue that they were um, talking about, and they were completely all over the, all over it. They were really, yeah, they were great. It was quite fascinating too, the step by step, as I said, the the way uh, it, because it was uh, encapsulated in a relationship. Uh, uh, the fact that the disasters, the very public disasters, even though there had been more disasters but nobody knew about them, <laughs> uh, uh, really um, fall almost uh, in, in precise decades, you know, like uh, Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, followed by Fukushima. Yeah, as reminders why nuclear power really has a downside yeah and um i don't know it's, it is quite striking isn't it? you know they, they talk about um i read a lot of books about sort of the the psychology of risk and not even just the psychology of risk but you know how risk is dealt with in you know in big industries i mean there's, there's been a lot of work obviously done in the aviation industry um and in in nuclear power they talk about you know events kind of i don't know one in a in a hundred years or one in a thousand year events and what they expected in the 50s about how often these kinds of, you know, really significant accidents on the scale of those ones we've just mentioned, they thought that those would happen much, much more rarely as it's turned out, you know, those three events, that's, that was the 70s, the 80s and the, and the well, beginning of the 2010s. That's not quite one a decade, but it's, um, it's, it's, it's much, much more frequent than in 100 years. And, you know, that's not to say... That we're going to keep having a big nuclear accident every 20 years but you know it does give you pause and it's this whole issue about um frequency versus severity i suppose you know even if the, if, the, if the severity of the accident is so so huge is it worth taking that risk even if it might only happen every 100 years i don't you know these are the issues that and there's not really a right 
right answer to that, you know, especially now in the context of climate change. I mean, I think if the if the economics were different, there would be a conversation to be had about trade off of the risk because the climate crisis is so we're such a crisis. You know, we're facing we're facing existential risk from climate change. I mean, it would not be a conversation you'd want to have happily, would it? You know, one one existential sort of risk versus another, but it's a conversation. But actually, I don't think it's a conversation that's, in a way, it's, there's any point having it because nuclear power is economically and politically, it's just not, it's just not happening. Um, if it was happening, they talk about they're still talking about building, you know, hundreds and hundreds of reactors. Now we're talking about newer generations, smaller modular reactors, but it's still really just quite hypothetical it's not really happening if it really was happening if they were able to do it then that then would be having a conversation I think it would be a difficult conversation and I don't know where I would land on it really because I'm terrified about you know the, the, the future that climate crisis but equally the, the, the terrifying risk of a, of a nuclear accident is also terrifying so it's hard to know isn't it well no the the price of um uh wind and uh solar has outstripped the nuclear argument and also the um, removal of waste. Oh, the question is about the research, the level of research. Is it focused or general or what? Um, well, because I was making this film, you know, alongside, I was working in TV. I mean, it took me, I was making this film for years. I first, very first had the idea that I was going to make a film about nuclear power in 2006, um, which is ridiculous. That's what, 15 years ago. Um, I didn't really start making this film in, you know, in in its current shape until until about 2012. So that's still, you know, it's coming up for a sort of decade in the making. Um, I was kind of researching as I went along, you know, because you, it was a very different experience than a, a sort of commissioned TV programme where you you kind of know ahead of time really what the film, you know, you tell the broadcast, we want to make a film about this, this is what the story is, and kind of go off and tell that story. Because I was doing this as an independent film, there was nobody, there was no broadcaster, you know, kind of telling me what to do. So I was able to just kind of follow what interested me. And also there were big gaps, you know, because it, the, the biggest challenge was to raise the raise the money to make this film. You know, it's completely independently funded. Um, and I made things very difficult for myself by making a film that's absolutely full of archive footage, which is very expensive <laughs> to, to, to pay for. Um, so, I, you know, I didn't make things easy, but... It was one of those things I'd started. I was, you know, I was making this film. I've kind of committed to do it. If I was going to do it, I wanted to make the film I wanted to make in the end. So that's why it took so long, partly because of just raising the money. So I would raise a bit of money, then I would do a bit of filming. Then I'd have a bit more, you know, to show people. Then I'd raise a bit more money, do a bit more. I was always kind of keeping on researching, but also obviously events were still happening. So things were you know, obviously when Fukushima happened, initially I was like, oh God, you know, now what does this mean for my film? Isn't that awful? I mean, you shouldn't be thinking about what a, ma a major accent like that, what did it mean for my film? But, you know, that is what I was thinking initially. I was like, no, no one's going to, no one's going to be interested in now having a discussion about new nuclear, like it's finished, you know, but in fact, it kind of, that's not what happened. And the, the story moved on and I was able to incorporate Fukushima and what happened after Fukushima into the film and you know, if I'd have only made it in a, in a year or two years, I think it would have been a much less, um, just much less nuanced and much less, you know, there's a lot of, I think I think there's a lot of depth in it because there's so much more, there's, yeah, there's so much research that's gone into it even beyond what's on the screen. I mean, I've got loads of extra interviews 
interview content, which I'm kind of packaging up. I'm going to try and make some of that available because I've just, yeah, I mean, I interviewed so many people and they had so many interesting things to say. And especially, as I said, you know, some of those people have passed away now. That was the last time, you know, I, I caught some of their stories on tape that I would like to, you know, share for whoever might find those interesting. There's so much more material than what I was able to put into that 90 minute film. Um, yeah, so I mean, there was, a, I mean, and in some ways now I almost feel like I, I still can't help myself. I'll see it. I'll see a book or I'll see something. And I got, I was, it became my identity really for like a decade that I was making a film about nuclear power and I was constantly anything that wouldn't have might, might be interesting or might be, could feed into that film. And I still catch myself doing that now, even if the film is finished and it's out there. So I can't, I can't put anything new into it now because it's done, but you know, it's an ongoing process really that research. Well, it's great. And the re one of the reasons for why it's so great for us in Australia at the moment is because we've got a really terrible government and uh, it clutches at straws on a continuous basis to um, uh, answer problems. And the big problem, of course, is climate change, which it's been denying for ages, but now, and, and it is in love with big business. So, and the citizens and the uh, country are fairly irrelevant. So they're now sneakily trying to raise the sector of uh, nuclear power as the answer to climate change. So it, it's a perfect time for your film to come out for us. Yeah, it's, it's been really interesting for me to, you know, the, the panel discussion that we had um, last week with ACF was, was yeah, it was really fascinating to me because obviously in my country we've had nuclear power for however long it is 70 odd years you know it's it's there so it's a kind of it's a different conversation and obviously we're still yeah we have a government that is actively promoting we you know in fact there was just the anniversary a few days ago um the, the one big nuclear power that's being built anniversary is the wrong word but they're, they're five years through the construction it's halfway built so there was lots of celebratory you know news reports um but meanwhile, I don't know, you know, the climate change has got even worse. They're halfway built, but they're, they're halfway built. They're not built, you know, I don't know. And meanwhile, solar and wind, like you say, are coming cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And I don't know, it's this sort of, it's this, it seems strange to me. Like, I think it's because it's interesting to me that a country like Australia that doesn't have nuclear now would, would consider it. I think it's different. Like we, it's, we already have it. So there's, there's a kind of inbuilt, sort of legacy that's already there and there's also that kind of there's there's all the people who already work in it you know they've devoted their lives to it they don't want it to go away but it's not it doesn't really make sense as a mm. as a solution for for climate change or even really just for producing enough energy i don't think in in the world that we're kind of do so it's really yeah it's extremely interesting to me slash bizarre <laughs> i think that um countries that don't have it would would seriously consider it but but that's again where we get into all those issues about what kind of what's it really all about and that's what's so interesting to me is the kind of the psychological issues the political factors all the reasons really why I guess why a government like your government would would be interested in it are not really so much to do with the good or bad the pros or cons of nuclear they're to do with other things other factors I think I think there might be a, a kind of macho element as well. You know, a nuclear, a nuclear power station is a big, it's a big kind of engineering thing. Yeah. 
and there is you can go and cut the ribbon and open it and say look at this big shiny nuclear power station and it's just um it's just maybe more appealing to a to a, to a political leader who wants to kind of put their name to that and to sort of have a big power of kind of a big program sorry of um you know solar panels on everyone's roofs or energy efficiency of course is the other thing that doesn't get talked about nearly enough you know if we just all use a bit less energy then we don't have to generate the energy that we don't use or that we don't waste we will still waste so much energy and wouldn't it be interesting if all of the all of the pr that went for you know for nuclear but also for, for fracking you know there's been a lot of that over the last decade or you know all of the pr or the promotions around different types of energy generation wouldn't it be interesting if some of that effort went into just teaching people to think about their energy use mm. i don't know i wonder whether people will look back in 50 years or whatever and think why i suspect that those things will just become the norm because they'll have to and then people will think why weren't they doing that 50 years ago you know I, mm. we, we will see you're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. The Maritime Union of Australia is pleased to announce the struggles that made us post a design prize. With a five grand first prize, the MUA is calling for submissions of a poster or artwork that addresses or is inspired by the struggles, events or historical figures amongst Australian maritime workers. The winning design will be launched on May Day 2022 and featured in a special May Day edition of Overland magazine. So get amongst it, people. Jump online and search for MUA Design Prize to enter. The Maritime Union of Australia is a proud 3CR supporter. We're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we were just listening to a chat with Vicky Leslie whose film The Atom, A Love Affair is available at Dartmouth Films. Just go online and you can get her, um, pay $10 and watch it because it's actually worth it. Uh, coming up next on Solidarity Breakfast, we're going to f- talk to Alex. Uh, here we go. Alex is from the Renters and Housing Union. Uh, g'day, how are you? I'm not too bad, Annie. How are you? Good. Thanks for getting up in the morning and having a chat. Everything's gone very strange time-wise because of COVID. That's no problem. I, I quite like getting up early in the morning. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, the reason why we're having a chat with you, Alex, is because the Renters and Housing Union have just put out a report. But before we get on to that report, I'd love you to uh, talk to our listeners about the fantastic work <laughs> that uh, you guys have been doing. What are you up to? Sure. So the Renters and Housing Union was formed um, around a year and six months ago. Um, it emerged out of the nascent rent strike movement um, in Victoria. <clears throat> and then since then, we have slowly been building into a union which covers a number of different areas. We have a support work team. We have a renters' rights team. Uh, we do advocacy and, and research, and we do direct action on occasion. Um <clears throat> And at the moment, we're sort of still growing. We're one of the fastest growing kind of uh, unions in Victoria at the moment. Um, And we've just finally released our sort of 12-month report, which is the first sort of 12 months of our 
our union covering all the work that we did during that time. Yeah, and part of that work has been, uh, as you said, advocacy and uh, being on the coalface, sorry, my lips won't work properly today. Um, <laughs> I'm a bit sleepy. I was up listening to a, a webinar, a fascinating webinar at uh, late from Europe, but of course they're on the other side of the world. <laughs> and it was in the morning for them. But anyway, by the by, um, uh, because you're on the coalface and you're doing advocacy, uh, you have been able to get an understanding of the effects of the um, moratorium on evictions and uh, the um, uh, efforts to stop uh, price uh, uh, people being evicted because they can't pay rent and because of uh, uh, st- uh, economic stress over the COVID period. What's what have you found? So the eviction moratorium during last year's um, COVID lockdown was welcome, but it was not necessarily well designed in a lot of ways. So um, largely, while people couldn't get evicted, the the idea was that landlords and real estate agencies would come to the table to try and negotiate rent reductions for people. In most cases, what we found, people ended up deferring or were told they had a reduction but actually was a deferral. So what that essentially means is there's a whole heap of unmet debt um, that is still sort of carrying over to this day. Now, so the second lockdown or major lockdown this year, there actually is no eviction moratorium in place. Um, And we can see already a number of evictions that don't follow proper legal process, um, evictions that are, are given for no reason, um, and this is despite a change in rental laws in, in March, which, which makes it a little bit harder. Um, but the situation from last year to now is, is actually very different. It's, it's almost much more bleak for a lot of, a lot of renters and people in, in public and community housing. Yeah, it's fascinating to discover um, how uh, some real estate agents and um, landlords uh, seem to be vying for the worst persons in the world <laughs> um, the uh, I, I mean I, I've, uh, I've met some really unpleasant uh, real estate agents personally personally and I'm sure there's some fabulous ones out there um, but um, you, you're reporting people who are being physically mozzed by these people who want them out even though they've got no right to be uh, pushing them out. That's correct, yeah. So we have um, we had four cases within the scope of this report where uh, a number of our members had experienced um, physical or verbal violence from their said landlord. Um, in some cases, the landlord or the real estate agent would continually harass uh, renters around um, repairs or, or aspects of their, their tenancy that, that were not necessarily agreed on. Um, and a lot of the issue stems from, I, I guess, a lack of accountability for both of those parties, the landlords and, and real estate agents. There's, there's very little recourse for um, punishment uh, for, for those kind of actions, but also just renters not necessarily knowing their rights, which is a reflection of like the massive power imbalance 
between people who, who own housing and, and people who don't in this country. Um, and we find that is particularly exacerbated for, for people from, from migrant backgrounds, for people who are on short-term visas or student visas, which, which make up a lot of our, our, our cases. They'll often have informal tenancies or, or, or leases that are just not necessarily um, in any way <laughs> accurate or a, a proper lease. Yeah, yeah, this uh, sort of uh, manipulation of the system. So, for example, even in the period where there should be no evictions, a moratorium on evictions, except for if the uh, owner wants to move in or there's going to be renovations or they're selling, you know. So, of course, that those three things went up astronomically. Yeah, exactly. And and we, we still find up to now what, what is happening one of the biggest issues is that, is as I said before, that renters don't necessarily know their rights. So to give you an example, uh, recently we had a, a, a situation where uh, real estate agencies had just put letters that they'd written underneath the doors of a number of different houses in a particular complex saying, you know, we're, we're selling and, and we want you to essentially hand in your, your self-eviction notice. Now, that's not necessarily illegal, but it's incredibly uh, misleading because, you know, they, they didn't give a particular reason, they didn't uh, specify anything, and at the same time, they're asking a renter to sort of self-evict. And because renters are so used to, in a lot of cases, this incredibly unfair power imbalance, it's, it's um, sometimes difficult to... to um, organised collectively against that. But I guess that's one of the, the strengths of the union and for such a such a young union, we've had a lot of successes in being able to do that and raise collective awareness. Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually about self-perception and it go, your union really exposes the uh, deep uh, class issues in this country uh, and the self-awareness of the uh, population. Uh, well, they own the property. They're telling me to leave. I should uh, just pack up my bag and leave you know I've got no I'm just a little uh, little person who doesn't own anything right uh, these power imbalances that you're talking about are, are, are the key aren't they that's right yeah and I think I mean you know I, I don't necessarily think the rental laws in in Victoria are fantastic but they're, they're good in an Australian context mm. and what we find is when we support our members to advocate uh, back um, particularly around relatively mundane things such as such as bond claims, um, you know, often real estate agents will just try and take it. And oh, they never give it back. They, they never, never give, give it, it back. back. But you know, we basically have helped our our members to to sort of argue against that. And and what you'll find is a lot of the time you, you can essentially win. Um, most bond claims are pretty pretty shit, to be honest. Um, and with a bit of organisation and a little bit of knowledge of your own rights, you, you can you can kind of fight back, and you can see that in our report. You know, we've managed to total up. I think it's around one hundred twenty six thousand dollars that we have won back for our members. Yeah, very impressive. Um, which, yeah, is is really impressive, and it is really a testament to a lot of our members themselves. So, um, we just kind of give them a bit of a, a supportive hand around helping them understand what is relatively complex legislation, and then. They really just kind of are able to advocate themselves, and that has a really good flow-on effect. Um, often, finds that people will join the union on the basis of recommendation of a friend of theirs who's, you know, been supported to get their bond back. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, this, this is great stuff. And uh, the, the landscape at the moment, I mean, this report uh, shows, uh, for example, that uh, uh, 91% of the people that you were talking to, and obviously this is just a straw poll in effect, it's probably right across, and you refer to larger uh, data sets that uh, have come out from other places, that uh, people are under rental stress. I mean, the definition of rental stress is 30% of the income that you've got, but the people are paying over 60% of their income and more. That's correct, yeah. So um, for us, as you mentioned, um, for casework, 91% of the people that we supported were, were in some form of rental stress. And our report draws from a number of different sources. So from our casework data, which is what I've mostly been referring to, also some wider sort of research into the housing market, um, a survey that we did of our members and, and wider kind of renters, and an analysis of some um, VCAT kind of findings around um, different rental disputes. But as you mentioned, you know, that larger um, experience of rental stress is is something that, that is forefront in so many people, particularly young people's minds, you know, like that is just the norm. Um, and one of the big things that, that you know, we, we want to be able to do is, is to fight back against uh, rent increases um, and we have been able to do that on a lot of occasions um, and to always kind of keep the the, the forefront idea of um, that rental strike in the back of our, our minds as, as a leverage tool and a piece of power over um, as you mentioned before like the capital learning class as a as a as an example of the class um, aspects and issues of this issue. Yeah, it's interesting to me because, um, you know, with COVID, uh, it's, it seems to me that it uh, has exposed the weaknesses of capitalism, uh, to put it bluntly, uh, but also the um, the beating heart of the uh, uh, um, uh, nasty uh, money-grubbing uh, capitalist is fully exposed because it's showing that uh, you, you've showing that um, uh, in in rural settings uh, over this period, people's rents have gone up by twenty five percent. I mean, yeah. you know, rents are going up, even uh, and crushing people. Yeah, exactly. The problem is, is is exacerbated in rural areas where there's a, like a real lack of supply of housing in the first place. Um, in, in some cases in the city, you have seen some rents, although real estate agents won't necessarily tell you this, kind of go down in, in for example, apartments um, due to lack of international students and other kind of systemic acts. But like, as you say, like rural areas, the... the some of the stories that, that you sort of hear coming out of there, particularly with um, people who do have the cap- capacity and capital to, to work home and to move into rural areas, you know, to kind of sort of blows over kind of thing. And what that does when we live in those areas we're trying to rent is, is, um, is heartbreaking, you know, and it, it really, as you said, like undermines how uh, grubby uh, the housing market is. You know, the fact that it is even a market is is, is disgusting. Um, 
Yeah, well, and one of the things that the union wants to fight against. Yeah, yeah, and I, re- I really want to ask you because we have to finish. I really want to ask you this question around social housing and this uh, Victorian government push. Uh, for, you know, it's got a plan, it's got a name, you know, they've all got names and it's all very good and all the rest of it. And I've heard various uh, workers in the trades talking about how they're working on social housing projects and they think this is a good thing. Um, and But, of course, generally speaking, these social housing projects are actually being built on the bones of public housing. Um what, what's, what's your union's view on what's going on? Is this a good thing? Is something good happening here? Well, look, we think that a lot of it, in, in, as you said, is, is built on the bones of public housing. One of the key recommendations coming out of our report is that we want the Victorian Department of Treasury to commit 85% of that big housing build to new public housing stock. So that's essentially building public housing stuff that's controlled by the state government. It's not controlled by um, social housing private enterprises. In a lot of cases, we know that the social housing um, providers, the private rental providers, are essentially like fronts for, for like, you know, developers and, and mm. things like that that are looking to kind of feast on the carcass of very expensive and, and well-maintained uh, kind of public housing. So... Um, yeah, our, our position as a union is, is has always been to focus heavily on the construction of new state-controlled public housing, uh, not private sort of social housing-run um, enterprises. But you're also pushing for a cap on the uh, rents if if people are in social housing. That's correct. Yeah, so we want to have uh, a cap on any social housing rent. Um, and also indexed to, to wage growth for, for rent, rental properties in general. Yeah. Where do people get access to your report? So you can find us on all sort of social media, on Facebook, um, Twitter under Rahu, and we also have our website, which is rahu.org.au, um, and you can download the report there and also um, a summary if you're interested. Thanks for talking to me this morning, Alex. Thanks so much. Have a good day. You too.
a week for whatever he bricky team list and when a bit of bad luck befell the Troubler Wazzy Capitalist Review. Oh, just before I go there, this will stun you, listener. Every day this week, hard as it is to believe, the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin had a sensation, sensation front page attacking the evil pejorative Dan state socialist government. <laughs> Told you you'd be stunned. Anyway, bit of bad luck befell the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review just after we recorded this segment Friday morning last week with its monthly glossy magazine's annual Power Edition that morning for the first time not making number one the big supremo, poor scummo, but naming four state supremos, same day as one of the apparently most powerful people in the country resigned. What dreadful, what unfortunate timing. And poor Gladys, didn't our hearts go out to her? They certainly should go out to the people of New South Wales, given what replaced her. And perhaps next year they could give it to the Anti-Corruption Commission, and perhaps again, that explains why a federal commission is the last thing Big Supremo scuttled them more lace son, a.k.a. Scummo, and the team want. Of course, there's absolutely no chance the capitalist review will give it to the genuine powerful, the puppeteers in the corporate boardrooms and down at the stock exchange, who control the strings of those they do tell us are the most powerful. A few people who wouldn't have a clue what they're talking about, like human and civil rights advocates, suggest the corruption stroke integrity body the government plans sometime in the course of the next 10 parliaments. When it promised one during the last election, it forgot to add, inadvertently forgot, it planned to ease it in over the next 10 parliaments. Suggests the body lacks a bit of teeth, including that it can't be retrospective. A body with real powers presents a serious threat to democracy, as Hayseed and Sheepshit Party Supremo Barnacle pointed out. A Spanish Inquisition! And who wants to see poor Gladys burnt at the stake? Uh, but surely, Barnacle, you want an anti-corruption integrity body to have real integrity. We certainly do, and like you know, we support it being integral, but it can't nail us. Uh, but integrity and integral aren't the same thing. Oh, yes, they are, from where I'm standing. But what's wrong with retrospectivity? After all, you set up inquiries into the socialist government like pink bats, and you set up royal commissions and inquiries into long-ago matters involving little Billy Shorten Ambition and Julia Gallinghard. Exactly. You've answered, you know, like your own question. Integral to the greatest little economic order, of course, is we are meeting our legal tax obligations. So why is it considered big news when every couple of years more revelations emerge of the world's filthiest rich or the filthy rich and autocrats using tax havens and convoluted financial mazes to ensure they do meet their legal tax obligations? It would only be news if they weren't. And look, I'm sick and tired of whingers who are never satisfied, like the new Samoan supremo, Fiame Naomi Mata'afa, who kicks dirty True Blue Aussie's face despite Scomo going out of his way at great expense to protect Samoa, complaining that True Blue Aussie has to do lots more to address the march of climate change across the Pacific. For goodness sake, what business is that of hers? Science, not silence, she argued, should be the reaction to the latest apocalyptic report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, if there is such a thing. 
that is climate change, not the panel. And if the science was proven, does she seriously think Scummo and the Barnacle and the team would continue to do nothing about it? Of course they wouldn't, and this after Scummo has committed to untold billions on nuclear-powered submarines to protect Samoa and our Pacific neighbors from the aggression of evil, evil China. OK, OK, waters around True Blue Aussie and Samoa are rising faster than the world average, but surely that's her business, not ours, as she hides behind the flimsy excuse that places like Samoa are making very little contribution to their own drowning. And why should we commit economic suicide as one of the world's great fossil exporters when the prices of oil, gas and coal are at record levels? Make hay while the sun shines and shines, and shines, hotter, and hotter, and hotter. Thankfully, the smart ones are cashing in. Headline Thursday, investors flock to oil, gas, and coal amid surge in demand. Does Samoa expect those wise investors not to make a killing? Well, maybe killing is the wrong word in the circumstances, but speaking of protecting the Pacific from evil China, the great liberty, freedom and democracy loving protectors of peace, the quid, uh, no, no, hang on, hang on, the, the quad, the quad, the, the US of the UN of the US of the world and good Japan and good India and true blue Aussie bowling along on the US of coattails agreed to spend heaps on infrastructure projects across the Pacific. Oh, at last they are showing concern for their neighbours, I hear you say. Well, no, not exactly. They want to counter the influence of evil Chinese Belt and Road Initiative investments across the Pacific. Hope our neighbours like that ungrateful Samoan Supremo don't view the newfound interest with cynicism. On such matters, we commented last week on Barnacle's brilliant, uh, brilliant statement that he would support zero emissions by 2050 as long as it didn't affect coal and agriculture. Well, this week, his hayseed and sheepshit colleague, Fossils Minister Keith Pitpony, was obviously out to impress his great leader by proposing a $250 billion loan facility for the government to become financier of last resort for the coal industry as the super-efficient private sector deserts it saying his party could then support zero emissions by 2050 if the government supported his proposal, which would help with the transition. Presumably a transition from coal to, well, coal. We look forward to their contribution next week. All this, of course, assumes the planet will still exist in 2050 and the Minister for Environmental Destruction, Susan Lees and Dregs, got into the spirit of saving the planet by announcing yet another expansion of yet another coal mine, this time at Tarmore in New South Wales, allowing for an extra 33 million tonnes of coal to be mined. That should work wonders for the zero emissions target, but then, of course, we don't have a zero emissions target, so it doesn't matter. More good news for those making a killing out of record fossil prices. Their dear little children are also enjoying the kindness and generosity of government, as tax office figures this week showed the most exclusive private schools reaped $750 million, real figure, in JobKeeper payments, as they also announced neat little profits. So let's hope that government largesse provided a few extra playing fields and tennis courts and swimming pools and all the things your average state primary and secondary school enjoys.
And while we can't quite comprehend the difference, which thankfully big economic guru Josh Friday Meisbergs could comprehend as an expert in these matters, the private tertiary sector also reaped millions in JobKeeper, while public universities and tertiary institutions were somehow not eligible. No doubt there's a logical explanation for all that. Oh, let's be honest, we already know the answer, the illogical explanation. Apropos of not much, esteemed supermarket giant Woolworth's Trillions shows it really cares for dear little children by offering these bricks kids can annoy the hell out of their parents to collect. You get a brick or two with every $30 you spend. And when they've spent enough $30, the kids can make their very own Woolworths Trillions little supermarket. And the ads show just how over-the-top fun, fun, fun excited this makes the little dears. And these are the same people who tell us evil communists brainwash dear little children. Why the former vehement anti-communist B.A. Santa Maria would tell us communists brainwash dear little children in the same sentence, the same breath, as demanding state aid for Catholic schools, without even blushing. Also not blushing, and as I said last week, great news for us when we take to the streets support from unlikely sources like one of Lord Rupert's lucky columnists under the headline, Brutal Actions of Our uh, Police... Oh, sorry, brutal actions of our police are indefensible. So she'll be supporting us in future actions. As of no doubt, she'll be supporting the so-called Red Union. Very clever, see Red, it supports the socialist cause. Well, the national socialist cause, supporting the individual freedom of workers to pass on little gifts like coronavirus to their co-workers. That seems to be their major industrial cause, but it's, it's important as states accept that it's the economy, stupid, that the economy is far more important than death and illness, and it's so encouraging to see a real union accept that and stand up for real freedom. And let's get rid of seatbelts, bike helmets, all those attacks on our freedom while we're at it. And we know they must be on the right track when the Lord Rupert lackeys support them to the hilt against the constabulary Lord Rupert normally, well, past tense, now aren't we lucky he'll now be supporting us, normally supports. Unlike the daily P1 attacks Lord Rupert is forced to make on our behalf against the evil state government that has tried but has probably lost putting community health ahead of private profit. Shame, evil government, shame. Finally, interesting too that Lord Rupert and the media for profit generally, when workers take industrial action, such as currently delivery drivers and maritime workers because their caring employers refuse to negotiate, and in the former case gig entrants like Amazon profit levels undercut wages and conditions, profit unlevels, when the media for profit tell us how evil these workers are in destroying our Christmas and quote the caring employers denouncing the evil unions for their selfish, avaricious behaviour because the caring employers are 100% innocent as all they've done is refuse to negotiate and advocate a, a little bit of cunning on wages and conditions. Summed up beautifully by the Minister for something or other, Stuart Robot, who, who denounced union action as disaster, chaos. Are you kidding me? Brilliant insight showing why he deserves a ministerial salary. My word, there's some deep thinkers among that lot, aren't there? Good morning.
Hey y'all, this is Natalie from Blue King Brown and you're listening to 3CR. Support community radio and your local music scene. Subscribe now. And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, we've got one of these rabble-rousing union members on the line right now. Jamil, how are you from the Australian Education Union? Good morning, Annie. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I'm all right. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Thanks for uh, getting up to talk to me this morning. Now, uh, obviously, going back to school during COVID or uh, the whole experience of trying to be a school teacher or an educator during COVID has been uh, a very challenging affair. Can you give my listeners some understanding of your world at the moment? It's a fast-changing world. So the last couple of months we've been teaching remotely and just this term the Victorian government's got a reopening plan and so from this week we'll slowly be returning on site. So U12 have returned on site as of um, Tuesday this week and then by uh, around 5th of November all year levels will be back primary and secondary full time on site. Which is all a bit pretty scary, actually, considering the numbers are going up, up, up. Yeah, and even higher than what was expected at the moment. By December, um, it was expected that there'd be cases about 4,000 a day. And you can imagine how integrated schools are to the community. So already local schools I'm aware of are having cases with a either within the school or students getting it beforehand. So if there's cases in the community, they're getting into the schools and mitigation um, and OH&S measures are quite important in this context. Yeah, so you're you're a delegate on your site. So, um, and uh, a core group of you are pushing the uh, Australian Education Union to be quite active in this sphere, right? Yeah, we've been disappointed with the lack of advocacy around um, OH&S and trying to keep schools safer during the pandemic by our union. So there's a number of us in the COVID Safer Schools Network that um, have been meeting. The first uh, time we realised that there was broader concern was, it was maybe, it was over a month ago now, at an inner-city regional meeting where our delegates from the um, inner city of Melbourne meet, we passed the motion anonymously. It was around almost 50 people there calling for a couple of conditions before returning on site for mandatory vaccination for staff, close to 100% vaccination for eligible students, and air filters in every classroom and... None of these have been met as we return on site. So a number of staff aren't fully vaccinated and won't be for a while now. And a majority of um, year 7 to 11 are not vaccinated. Under 12 won't be at all. Uh, At least a quarter of year 12s haven't had their first vaccination either as they return on site. And... Although it's great that Dan Andrews has ordered 51,000 air filters, we 
don't know of any schools that have received them yet, and the majority of classrooms still won't have them, even with this purchase. So, so what you're saying, Dan? Yeah. So what you're saying is that there's a mistiming or a misstep between the plan to make schools safe and the time this this so-called it almost I almost choke when I say this uh, roadmap because we've all been seduced by uh, uh, pub, publicity advertising language. A roadmap to freedom is a little bit out of sync. That's what you're saying, isn't it? Definitely. We think that schools as a workplace and a place to study are unnecessarily unsafe right now. And so, oh dear. It's definitely premature. Yeah. And so what what are you guys aiming to do about this in your own workplaces and in general? Well, even though a number of us believe that returning on site is premature, there's limited amount that we can do on that front. And so right now we're looking at trying to make work our schools as safe as possible with the knowledge that that that's, that can't be done completely. There's no way of keeping COVID out. The government should be pursuing a policy of trying to keep co- cases down as close to zero as, pol- as possible, which they have let go of. So in that unfortunate situation, it's more... We've been meeting and discussing what kind of um, OH&S measures we can take within schools uh, that can reduce our risk as much as possible. And there's a, a lot that can be done and a lot that isn't being done on a local level, which is not the message that you hear from Molino or the Victorian government right now. So uh, you guys are actually creating a list or a, a to-do list for your workplace? Yeah, and so like this, the public school I'm in has been really proactive. So we've, we've been pulling examples together of what schools have been doing and we've created a checklist yeah, of a number of things. And a lot of schools have like even basic things like making sure each classroom have got windows that can open. Uh, that's, that's not a given at all. No. Uh, there's rooms with really poor ventilation and right now that won't have been audited as schools return. Um, So quite basic measures like that um, uh, are lacking in some schools, and so there are unionists trying to change that. They're calling union meetings, talking to their um, HSR reps, and trying to push for a number of measures. And then another issue is that Schools have not been told who's defined as a close contact and what the contact tracing regime is going to be like school to school. And so uh, unions returning to their workplace have got no sense of the risk involved if there are outbreaks. So at the moment, if there is a case in a school, literally the school's being told in that moment by the department what to do and many schools, are, there's not a 14-day um, shutdown going to remote learning anymore, and there's great uncertainty what the response would be. So that we're asking for clarity on that and wanting a more um, risk-adverse approach. Yeah, it's a bit of a worry. It's a, um, It sounds clearly to me that uh, 
uh, at a community level and at a local level, the, this, the, uh, the most powerful actions are going to be at that level, person to person in communities now, right? Uh, yeah, we think twofold. So ways in which we can encourage collective action within union branches in schools, I think, would be the most powerful act right now for um, unionists in schools to demonstrate to the principal that they want certain actions and then referring to the operations guide, which is the guide that the department puts out that specifies uh, different OH&S measures that are needed, but also to encourage that the school acts beyond it, like at the school that I'm at, because we don't know when we're going to get air filters. The OH&S committee have purchased a few and we've ordered a few CO2 metres as well to be able to um, gauge how well the ventilation is to see if we need to take any further actions. So but it, uh, collective action within schools, I think, is the most effective way to um, bring these about. OK. Then, um, d- uh, yeah. Oh, sorry, sorry. You were going to say? I'm sorry I interrupted you. Also, the the union hasn't been advocating for um, a number of these measures as well. So we think that things need to happen beyond a local level as well to encourage the union to advocate for us. Yeah, yeah. So what you're saying is that the the members of the union need to uh, give the, the union a little bit of a push. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, do you? Is there any way people can uh, who are in your industry can uh, keep in contact with uh, keep schools safe? Uh, yeah. So AU members are welcome to to get in touch and, and join our meetings. Where they've largely been discussion based to problem solve in different workplaces to see what individual members can do, as well as talk about what we can do on a broader level to collaborate yeah. across schools. Thanks, Jamil. Thanks for talking to us. No worries. Thanks for your time. No worries. Bye. And uh, we're coming up to the end of the program, but uh, uh, and I promised you uh, that we would play a, um, a, a mighty speech from the Tamil Refugee Council uh, meeting that was convened to discuss the uh, ejection, or oh, you know, the uh, n- no uh, rest of the wicked. The uh, LMP federal government started to uh, uh, eject uh, Tamil refugees. Uh, you know, they've already done four uh, people have been uh, sent back to uh, uh, an unsafe environment in um, Sri Lanka for Tamils and uh, this speech that was given uh, there's an introduction to the person that's speaking is just an absolute cracker and uh, I'll have to say that uh, it is a bit tough uh, so um, because it's very confronting Uh, so if you uh, don't like to be frightened then probably I should say goodbye sayonara for now Um, And uh, for all the rest of you who uh, are brave enough to uh, hear the truth, here we go. So next uh, we're going to have Renegar speak. 
Renegade Impa Kumara is a 19-year-old and has been advocating for refugee and Tamil rights since she was 12. She attended the United Nations in Geneva last year to expose the inhumane treatment of two indefinitely uh, detained refugees. Uh, please make her feel welcome. Thank you. So before I begin my speech, I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I work and live and recognize the continuing connection to land, water and community. I pay respect to elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. We recognize the past atrocities against Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples of this land and that they are still struggling and that Australia was founded on the genocide and dispossession of First Nations people. The questions us Tamils are constantly faced with is, why can't Tamils go back and what is the situation in Sri Lanka? Before I begin answering, let me give a short description of 1948, the year where persecution began towards Elam Tamils in Sri Lanka. Since 1948, Elam Tamils have been persecuted solely based on their nationality. Since 1948, Elam Tamils endured bombing, massacre killings, rapings of both women and men, and the burning of children. Since 1948, Tamils were forced to leave their own motherland, having to see their land be destroyed by the racist Sri Lankan government. But in 2009, it was the peak of the genocide where Elam Tamils experienced bombings, such as the no fire zone in where Tamils were taken to a place where it was deemed that bombings will not take place. But sadly, no fire zone was bombed continuously, killing those who were trying to flee killing those who were newborns and killing those who were just my age. 2009 brought a flood of boats to Australia, a flood of boats that held Tamils who wanted to start a new life and not have to live in fear in Sri Lanka, not knowing what will happen to them. It must be recognised that this was not a civil war, but a planned systemic genocide against the Elam Tamils that have been enacted by the Sri Lankan government through legal means, which have enabled and facilitated discrimination against Tamils. The Sri Lankan government is a chauvinistic, racist and demeaning body of power that has constantly caused the population in Tamil Elam to face persecution even now. The Sri Lankan government has painted us, Elam Tamils, as the ones who began the conflict. But if you look at history, it is quite apparent that the Sri Lankan government began the attack on us and has continued to prevent any form of justice we have tried to achieve. The Sri Lankan government have continued to ethnically cleanse our culture by burning the Jaffna Library, trying to remove our language by enacting Singular-only Act and even cause fear to anyone using the word Elam. Today, in its present time, the Sri Lankan government has used the lies of archaeology to demolish Hindu, Catholic, and Muslim religious sites, schools, and land to build their Buddhist shrines. They have tried to impose their Buddhism and culture upon the Elam community. They have built Navy and Army camps on the Elam Tamil land to scare and create harm against Tamils. The Elam Tamils are slowly but surely losing their land, and the Australian government continues to subject the Elam Tamils with racism and hatred. 
The Australian Foreign Affairs Department is being urged to retract a report which refugee advocates say is inaccurate and used to send Tamil refugees back to danger after United Kingdom court questioned its methodology. The DFAT report on Sri Lanka says torture of Tamils is no longer state-sponsored and that Sri Lanka faces a low risk of torture overall. This report is one of the most heavily relied upon documents used by the home affairs and tribunals who decide whether asylum seekers should receive Australia's protection or be sent back to their home countries. Tamil refugees are constantly being subjected to racism and it breaks my heart that we as a Tamil community know they have a right to stay in this country and we know why they fled. And yet our government still continues to subject them to inhumane conditions. Even now, the International Truth and Justice Project latest report has had many reports where the Sri Lankan police and army are still abducting, torturing and raping young Tamils. And this happens when they take part in commemoration events, anti-government protests or receiving funds from abroad. The Australian government strongly believe that Tamils are safe in Sri Lanka, when in fact there have been victims who have been abducted and have stated they were left bruised, bleeding and left naked in the dark on the floor with only their underpants to wipe the blood and sperm off their bodies. It was even stated that two men who were held by the Counter-Terrorism Investigation Division were anally raped by a metal rod. What infuriates me more than anything is that Tamils have been fleeing since 1948 in fear of their life. Yet the Australian government believed that Sri Lanka is safe. So why do you think they left in the first place? Sri Lanka is not safe. Let me read out just a few incidents that have occurred recently. One, the Sri Lankan minister Lohan Rathwatha forced Tamil inmates that were detained in the Anuradha Pura prison to kneel down at gunpoint. He was under the influence of alcohol when he entered the jail and demanded the political Tamil prisoners to perform the act. Lohan Rathwatha has a history of mass murder and he led the killing of 10 unarmed Muslims during the 2001 general elections. Two, another Tamil father has died following a 12 year search for his forcibly disappeared son. And still, the Sri Lankan authorities have not explained where the Tamil disappeared Tamils are. Three, a new generation of young Tamil men are being picked up and tortured by the security forces in the North and East for exercising the legitimate, peaceful and political rights. I have to sit every time listening to white, racist, rich individuals telling my community, especially that boat people would not be able to live freely. All I have to say to that is in 2009, how can Tamil refugees be able to get on a plane with no money and no aid? The only form of going via plane is to the main city of Sri Lanka being Colombo, which is situated in the south in a Sinhalese majority area that is unsafe for Tamils. The form of travel was by boat, and sadly, that was only the safest option. Tamil refugees in 2009 first had to walk through a trek where dead bodies piled up and begin their voyage to Australia. Yet Australia holds the worst inhumane refugee policies in any Western democracy. 
Tamil refugees have been known to be in a detention for a prolonged period of time and when being released are either provided with a TPV or CHEV visa, resulting in many to live life in limbo. Imagine every day you ponder whether the circo guards will come to your house, stripping you from the small amount of freedom you once had being locked behind barbed wire and being told you may have the possibility to be deported. Many Tamil refugees have explained that their kids are unable to go to university and fulfill their dreams, which encourages a cyclical pattern of being oppressed by the Australian government. There's also a wave of sadness in the Tamil refugee community as many families are separated and many have not seen their family for 10 years or more. But the worst bit is Tamils are being deported to Sri Lanka, not knowing what will happen to them. Only two weeks ago, the Tamil community was informed that there were four deportations, four deportations on a Tuesday afternoon. The Tamil community are now honestly waiting whether there'll be more. And sadly, there will be. The deportations that Tamil refugees endure is solely based on the white racist individuals in power today. That can be both Labour and Liberal parties. Both parties have claimed refugees as boat people, not humans, but referred to them as boat people. Shame on you. How dare the people in power believe they can dehumanize refugees? Being a part of Tamil Refugee Council and viewing the testimonials of Tamil refugees made me realize something. Every single video was extremely heart-wrenching to watch as I know those who paved the way for me to continue to fight have so much struggle and yet are being ignored by the Australian government. I want those who have not seen the videos to watch it. Look at their eyes. Their face may be covered, but their eyes and voice explain everything. But these videos made me realize that Tamil refugees, no matter what they endure in Sri Lanka and in Australia, has resulted in them to have a strong force and continue the hard work to draw awareness. Even if it means like Priya being dragged on the plane and it being recorded and showing the world, or even seeing the refugees on the streets screaming for change. Tamil refugees left for a reason. They left to feel a sense of hope after seeing their brothers and sisters be murdered under the hands of the Sri Lankan government in their own motherland. So I shall end with something that I always felt strongly from my heart. Tamil refugees are freedom fighters, not criminals or boat people. Freedom fighters who have taught me what strength is. Freedom fighters who have shown me that the strength that our ancestors have passed down from generations. Freedom fighters will fight till the end and freedom fighters that got on a boat with their newborn babies clenching onto them as they reached Australia. Freedom fighters who have scars that tell stories of the genocide. Freedom fighters who embody the strength of refugees and freedom fighters who I believe embody the Tamil community. And that is a community that is a force that should not be reckoned with. Thank you.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.